following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. continuing our series heart attitudes and we've been reflecting our new year's attitudes instead of new year's resolutions we've been talking about new year's attitudes and i guess the things that we should be cultivating and developing in our life um, as we face this new year with all of its uncertainty with all of the concerns with all of the joys and the challenges that might be ahead rather than trying to make resolutions which we really can't control Maybe we need to be focusing on cultivating attitudes that the Spirit can create and develop and grow in our hearts. So that's been the series we've been journeying on. And so this morning, I want to start by sharing just a little story with you. And this is a story about a group of scientists who decided that humans can do without God. So one of them looked up to God and said, We've decided that we no longer need you. We have enough wisdom to clone people and to do many miraculous things. God listened patiently and then said, very well, let's have a man-making contest or a human-making contest. Uh, contest. We'll do it just like I did back in the old days with Adam. The scientists agreed. And one of them bent down and picked up a handful of dirt. And God looked at him and said, no, 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 no. You have to make your own dirt. Yeah. So this morning, we're talking about humility. Humility. And really, for us to understand humility, we need to talk a little bit about pride, the antithesis. Um, And pride is described as one of the seven deadly sins in Catholic theology. And I want to suggest to you that I think pride is probably the central human sin that feeds into all the other ones. And uh, so I think we need to pay attention to this hard attitude. Now, really, talking about pride in our day, in our culture, is difficult because we've come to kind of soften pride a little bit, and we kind of associate pride with a, a little bit of a positive thing. That's, we kind of link it to self-esteem and uh, self-actualization, uh, and we kind of talk about our accomplishments. We want, as parents, our kids to be proud of their achievements and their accomplishments, and so we celebrate them, and, and, and we, we've kind of said that pride is not all bad. That, that perhaps, you know, it, it helps us think well of ourselves and not kind of, you know, think so badly about ourselves. And it helps us engage well in the world. So it's kind of tricky talking about pride. Now, there might be a good and a healthy and appropriate place to be celebrating and reflecting on our achievements and our accomplishments. And that's fine. Well, the pride that we're looking at this morning is, is this attitude directed against God. That's really what we're focusing on. And humility within that context of how we're to rightly relate to God. And so as we journey into this morning's message, um, I want to pray that God gives us eyes to see how pride works in our heart. Because it's a really tricky one, right? For example, you can be proud about your humility. (laughs) That's how tricky pride is. And we find it everywhere, even as we're doing very good and, and godly and wonderful things, the ugly head of pride rears itself. 
And so we really need the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and to uproot this thing and to grow humility in our hearts. So let me pray and we'll jump into this morning's message. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, because we need your grace and you've given it to us abundantly in Jesus. And you continue to give it to us in the person of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that as we engage with these hard attitudes, we can feel the weight of your word and be challenged and convicted. Lord, but we don't have to feel condemned because you've given us your Holy Spirit to cultivate and grow these attitudes in our heart. And so we thank you that he's here with us. And I pray that you will open our hearts to your word, to your spirit. Lord, that you'll give us ears to hear what your word is saying and and hearts to yield and surrender to your will this morning. I pray that you'll help me to communicate your word clearly and faithfully. And Lord, that you would challenge us, encourage us, and grow us through your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are we talking about? What is the biblical idea of pride? Well, John Stott came up with a really helpful definition. And he says this, pride, from a biblical point of view, is the stubborn refusal to let God be God with the corresponding ambition to take his place. It is an attempt to dethrone God and to enthrone ourselves. Profound when you think about that. And we see this attitude of pride throughout the Bible, beginning all the way in Genesis chapter 3, and we see it as significant moments of God's judgment on humanity. So in Genesis 3, with Adam and Eve, their, their sin really was propelled by their desire, what? To be like God. And then when we come to the Tower of Babel incident in Genesis 11, where God confuses the languages and disperses humanity, what was their sin? That they wanted to build a tower to reach to heaven. The arrogance of the human heart, the the pride that drives that. And we see Israel continually in their history wrestling with the attitude of pride every time they were successful, every time things worked well, every time life was going really, really good, they made it about themselves. And Moses in Deuteronomy 8, he warns them about this. And he says, beware that when you go into the promised land and God blesses you and things are really amazing and wonderful, that you don't say, my energy, my strength, my power, my hand did this pride and then the kings and empires that are constantly portrayed as God's ultimate enemies in the Old Testament Uh, Egypt and Babylon we see those references there and then we come to these interesting references in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and I want to read these to you because a, a lot of commentators believe that even though the prophecies are mainly targeting uh, human kings and, and rulers, that the way the prophets are describing these kings seems like they're talking about more than just human figures. And many commentators wonder if within these prophetic condemnations is an allusion or a hint to Lucifer and to Satan's fall. And when I read these, you'll kind of go, whoa, that sure sounds like it. So let, let's turn to Isaiah 14. And it says this, verse 12 to 15. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the above the tops of the clouds I will make myself like the most high but you are brought down to the realm of the dead to the depths of the pit 
it sounds like surely that can't be any human ruler. Surely that's got to be an allusion to something far more sinister, far darker, far more evil. And that's why you know, many Bible scholars believe that maybe there's a hint there of Satan's fall. And then Ezekiel chapter 28 uh, is very, very similar. Uh, and uh, if you want to turn there, we're going to have a look at this passage. Verses 11 to 19. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him. So it's clearly a prophecy against the king of Tyre. But again, maybe there's more going on here. This is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, chrysolite, and emerald, topaz, onyx, and jasper, and all of the other stuff. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as the guardian cherub, for so I foreordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Here's verse 17. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. So I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. Pretty profound. Pride at the heart of perhaps even Satan's fall, Lucifer's fall, which really ought to give us cause to concern ourselves and be challenged by the place of pride in our heart. And now I'm going to go real fast through these Bible passages. There's so many passages where pride is condemned. And I've just given you a sample of them. And we're going to read through these. The stubborn refusal, uh, sorry, yeah, to let God be God with the, oh, that's a bad copy and paste. Psalm 101, John Stott's definition there. Whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. Next one. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but he sets the widow's boundary stones in place. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. Pride goes before destruction. We have that saying, right? Pride goes before a fall. That's from Proverbs 16, 18. A haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And that's also repeated in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. So pride, really, really bad thing condemned throughout the Bible. And the book that we've been using by Graham Bainan called Heart Attitudes, he says there are three kind of driving forces that make pride so bad in the Bible. And this is what they are. In pride, we exalt ourselves above God. We, We elevate ourselves to be more than God. 
In pride, we state our independence from God. Where we say, God, you know what? We don't actually need you. We can manage ourselves really, really well. We want to rule ourselves. We want to be autonomous and and control our own destinies. In pride, we actually claim a, a significance and an importance to ourselves apart from God. In other words, we kind of take credit and glory that rightfully belongs to God and we give it to ourselves. And so in short, this is what Graham Bainan says about pride. We forget that we are creatures and we think that we are gods. That's really at the very heart of pride. We, we, we refuse to live under the rule of God and we want to sit on the throne and be our own gods. It is the foolishness of the human heart that forgets its creatureliness that we are created beings, created to live in total dependence on the creator God. And we want to be like God. So that's a little bit about pride. And a good way for us to think about it is to think about a kite. And this is such a great illustration. Um, And John Newton has a poem actually about the kite. But if you think about humanity as being like a kite... You know, the kite is soaring in the sky and it thinks to itself, man, if it just wasn't for this string, this hand holding me down, I could soar even higher. I could reach to the heavens. I could reach to the sun. I could just climb and climb and keep going. But the reality is the moment the string is cut, the kite doesn't soar. It comes crashing to the ground. But see, in our pride, we're like the kite that says, if I can just break loose from from God and have autonomy, and, and control and, and rule my own world and my destiny, I would really realize my full potential. And it's a lie. It's a lie that began in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden when Satan said to Adam and Eve, you can be like God. So humility. Unlike pride, Humility is commended everywhere in the Bible, over and over again. In many of those same passages that talk about pride, humility is also talked about a virtue that God's people ought to pursue and acquire and develop and foster in their hearts. And, and throughout the Bible, we see this idea that God's heart is for those who are humble. And again, there's so many verses, and I hope I haven't made copy and paste mistakes, but we'll see how we go. You save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his ways. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and lofty place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Those, for those who exalt themselves, Jesus says, will be humbled. And he says this several times in the Gospels. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Again, repeated in 1 Peter 5, chapter 6. And again, Graham Bainan is helpful in us understanding the essence of humility. And he, he kind of defines humility as having a right understanding of who we are in relationship to God. Being rightly related to, to God as human beings, as cre- creatures who've been created by God. And he says humility recognizes these four things. At, at the very least, God's greatness and our smallness. 
I think that would be profound for humanity, particularly in our day and in our culture, where we want to elevate and declare how great humanity is, and we forget the smallness of humanity. And I think things like the pandemic and things like the chaos in our world, God kind of goes, no, let me just remind you of who you are, that you are but dust, that you are a creature dependent on me. It, it, rem- it reminds us that, that God is created and we are his creatures. It, it helps us to see God as provider and we as dependents. That God as savior and we as sinners. It's having a right understanding of who we are in relationship to God. And like I said, the Bible says that God is opposed to the proud, doesn't tolerate the proud. But on the other hand, he says he draws near to the humble. He makes his dwelling with the humble. He loves the humble. He, he is attracted to the humble spirit and the humble heart. A broken and a contrite spirit, the Bible says in Psalm 51, he will not despise, but draws near to. The humble heart captivates God's attention. It gets his, his, his favor and, and love and blessing flowing because it's recognizing, God, you are God and I am not and I am completely dependent on you. And if you were to take your spirit from me, my life would cease in that moment. That my very next breath is dependent on you. And Jesus in, in the New Testament talked a lot about pride and humility. And he used lots of different stories and illustrations to tell us about the centrality of humility as an as a attitude in the kingdom of heaven. And I want to look at one such passage, and it's found in Matthew chapter 18. And you're probably very, very familiar with this. Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 5, where Jesus is trying to teach his disciples about the centrality of the attitude of humility in the kingdom of heaven. And he says this, Matthew tells us, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Isn't that question so much like the heart of humanity? Who's the number one? Who's the big cheese? Who's the boss? Who, who's, who's, who, in another way of saying, God, who do you love most? Who's your favorite? Who's the most important in the room? And Jesus responds, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Three different things that Jesus says there about humility that I think I want us to grab a hold of this morning. The first thing he says is that without humility, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. We can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says that, that he he places this child and he says, truly I tell you, unless you change, unless you change your attitude of pride and arrogance and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, if you come to God thinking you don't really need God to save you, then you won't be saved. If you come to God like Jesus taught in the parable in Luke chapter 18 of the the Pharisee and the tax collector, you come to God with your head held high and you go, God, look at me. 
Look how good I am. Look at all my self-righteousness. Look at all the things I'm doing. Look, I'm not like that guy over there. He, he really needs you to save him. But me, I'm, I'm pretty good. I fast, I tithe, I do all this stuff. God, look at me how good I am. Bless me, Lord. And he goes, and the, the tax collector, he comes with his head down. And he says, God, I, I don't know if you'll even hear me. I don't know if you're even going to look at me. I'm just a terrible, horrible, sinful, broken person. God, all I've got is one prayer. Have mercy. Have mercy on me. And Jesus says that it's that guy that went home justified. Or it is that guy who entered the kingdom of heaven. It is that guy that went away with God's forgiveness and God's declaration. You are righteous before me. It's because like Jesus said, he didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. He didn't come to, to save the, the healthy. He says, like a doctor, he came to save the sick, to help those who acknowledge that there's something fundamentally wrong and broken in their hearts, that they're sick spiritually and they need Jesus to be the divine healer. He didn't come to, to people who thought that they were found and they knew who they were and they, they, they knew who they, you know, that God was going to accept them on the basis of all their good works. No, he was using that, that illustration when he was talking to Zacchaeus, who was a messed up guy who had stolen lots of money. And Jesus says, no, I came to find those who know that they are lost. You see, so without humility, without bowing your knee, without recognizing your desperate state before God, without realizing that before a holy God, I stand condemned. I stand judged. I stand as a sinner. I stand as someone who deserves to be eternally separated from God, sent to a lost eternity, cast into hell forever and ever. That's what I deserve. And coming and saying, God, will you have mercy on me? Humbly, broken, desperate, lost, a sinner, sick, needing a savior. That's what it takes to be saved. Because the Bible says that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in Matthew 14, when Peter is drowning and sinking like this picture shows, he, he reaches out and he says a very simple prayer. What is it? Lord, save me. Save me. You know, we were at the beach a little while ago and we happened to see lifesavers, you know, going in to bring someone in. And you know, we, we teach our kids this, when you're in the beach and you're in trouble, what do you do? You put your hand up. But you know, the thing is, biblically, we're all drowning without Jesus. We're all caught in a rip that's going to take us to a place none of us really want to go. But Jesus will only save those who say, Lord, save me. I need you. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm lost. I'm sick. Lord, save me. It's to come to him on our knees. The question is, will you? Will I? Will we reach out and say, Lord, here I am. I need you. Save me. And the good news is that you can. You can reach out. All it takes is like Peter calling out from your heart, Lord, save me. Forgive me. Give me your mercy. I don't deserve it, but I ask for your mercy. And today, this morning, you can do that by praying that prayer in your heart. Lord, save me. And he will, because that is the promise of Scripture. The second thing that Jesus goes on to say is that without humility, we can't stay in the kingdom or remain in the kingdom or live the fullness of kingdom life. 
That we can't enjoy what it is to be a kingdom citizen. Because Jesus goes on to say that, therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's not talking about entering the kingdom. He's talking about what it means to live in the kingdom. Now, Jesus is not saying that there's a back door into getting into the kingdom, and that's humility. Not at all. There's only one way into the kingdom of heaven. It is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is through putting your faith and trust in what Jesus has done for you to pay the price for your sin. That is the only way to be redeemed and saved from God's wrath. And Jesus is not saying, ah, here's a way that you can actually be proud if you pretend to be humble. You know, he's not saying if you be like a child, if you act like a child, then you can actually be great. You can actually be important. You can actually be someone significant if you just be like a child. No. Jesus here is redefining the very definition of our understanding of greatness. See, the life in the kingdom so often is you go down to go up. You die to be resurrected. You lose your life to find it. It's this mystery that Jesus says, if you want to be great, you need to not only change your understanding of greatness in the kingdom, but you need to understand that only humility will allow you to find it. You see, because the way the Bible defines greatness in the kingdom is submission to the lordship of Jesus. It is living a life of dependence before the Father where you come before him every day in the Lord's prayer in that sense saying, God, give us this day our daily bread. The life in the kingdom, greatness in the kingdom is to find your fulfillment and your life in Jesus. It is to be consumed with honoring him and glorifying him. It is, in one sense, to lose yourself as you find yourself in Jesus. Rick Warren says this profound statement about humility in the kingdom. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Now, some people think that C.S. Lewis said this, but I actually did some research and it wasn't C.S. Lewis. It was Rick Warren who stated it quite like this in his book, Purpose Driven Church. What C.S. Lewis said is very similar. He said this, humility comes as one begins to forget about yourself altogether. To forget about yourself altogether. See, in the kingdom, it's not that you lose yourself, but you find your true self in Jesus. And because you found your true self, you find yourself thinking less about me and thinking more about Jesus. And it's about less about living the life I want and finding your true life in the life that Jesus wants for you. And so Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, it takes being on your knees receiving from my hand all that I have for you. It is trusting God with your future. It is submitting to the will of God in every circumstance, whether you understand the goodness or the rightness of the life that God chooses for you, the plan that God has and how that unfolds, or your present circumstances. It is to humbly come before God, trusting him as your father and in, in, in his goodness and say, God, I don't get this. This is hard. This is painful. This is frustrating. This is not the life I planned for myself. But God, you are my father. Jesus, you have saved me. And I trust you. And I bow before you and I submit to you. It is to take God at his word seriously. It is to spend time in his word, engage with it and obey it. Not just be a hearer, but to, to submit in humility and, and surrender to his love in obedience to his word. Jesus said that in John 15. It is to have a life of prayer because there's nothing that demonstrates your, your humble dependence on God than praying and seeking for God's grace in your daily life. Someone said that prayerlessness is one of the symptoms of pride in our heart because we actually think we don't need to talk to God about stuff. 
But when we are completely dependent on our Father and we know our place as creatures who He sustains, then we pray. We say, God, have mercy. God, give me the grace I need for today. Without humility, we can't enter the kingdom of God. Without humility, we can't really live the life that Jesus has for us in the kingdom. The last thing that Jesus alludes to here is that without humility, we can't imitate him, the king of the kingdom. It's impossible. We can't reflect him to the world around us unless we embrace humility, unless we embrace our own cross, unless we allow the Holy Spirit to cultivate this attitude in our hearts. And this is what Jesus says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name, verse 5, welcomes me. See, Jesus is all about the downcast, the outsider, the nobody. See, back in this time, children had no rights. They were the, on the lowest rung of the ladder. In fact, they probably weren't even on the ladder. They were nobodies. And Jesus says that his disciples ought to live like him. Because that's what Jesus at Philippians 2 tells us that. See, sometimes we think of humility as being a doormat, as being a worm, as being a loser, as being kind of a nobody, and we shrink back and go, oh, I don't want to be proud. Oh, no, I'm nobody. Please don't look at me. You know? But if you want to understand what humility looks like, look at Jesus. Do you see Jesus ever doing that? No. He knew who he was, and he pointed people to the Father, absolutely. But he didn't cower. He wasn't like a worm. And Philippians 2 tells us that the King of glory humbled himself came to us in the form of humanity and demonstrated that humility by dying as a criminal on a cross to atone for your sin and mine, to pay the debt that we owed. That is the example of humility he calls us to embrace and to follow. That's why Jesus uses the language, take up your cross and follow me. You, you want to imitate and reflect the king of the kingdom of heaven? It's going to take humility. It's going to take humility. It's going to take allowing the love of God to so transform your heart that you don't think of yourself as a worm or a nobody, but you recognize that you once was a slave. You once were a slave, outcast, destined for hell, a nobody, until Jesus, the one who has all glory, the creator of the universe, the eternal God, humbled himself, became nothing took upon himself humanity, became like you, like me, to die on a cross so that then he could rescue you, save you, and make you a son, make you a daughter, bring you into the family of God. And that's what you and I are supposed to do, to love others that way, to serve others that way, to take the lowest seat in the house, as Jesus talks about in another parable, to give reference to others, to give honor to others, to treat people and speak to people with respect and with dignity, not because we think that they're more important than us, but because we know how important we are to God and we know how important they are to God. This is not about self-deprecation because that is not the way of Jesus. So what does the way of Jesus look like? Well, John chapter 13 is probably my favorite illustration of this of how we can do this and how we can learn from this. And it says this, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in this world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. 
And here's the critical verses for us. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, that is so critical, those two letters. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You see, if you want to embrace a Christ-like humility, you've got to know who you are in Christ. You've got to know Ephesians 1. You've got to know that you are seated in heavenly places just like Jesus. You're seated with him, enthroned with him as God's son, God's daughter, loved unconditionally, loved That's who you are. That's where you see that. Just like Jesus, he knew that the Father had put all things under his power. The second thing is that he knew where he'd come from. Don't ever forget where you've come from. And you haven't come from the Father. You've come from your other Father, as Jesus talks about in John 8. You used to be a slave to sin, a slave to the God of this age, a a slave to Satan. That's where you've come from. But that's not who you are now. You've been rescued. You've been redeemed. You've been set free. You've been made a son and a daughter. You've been forgiven. You have been transformed from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. That is who you are. Remember that. The third thing Jesus had in mind was that he was returning to God. Know where your destiny is. That you have an eternal inheritance waiting for you. That your father is keeping it safe and secure in heaven for you. That's where you're heading. That, and, and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Your future in God is absolutely secure because it's based on the finished work of Jesus. That's where you're going. And so like Jesus, when you have those things in mind, you too can get up, wrap a towel around you, and wash the feet of the one who is about to betray you. The one who is about to deny you. All the others who are going to abandon you. The ones who you formed out of the dust of the earth. The ones who you breathed into and gave life to. You can wash their feet. And I remember someone saying to me, it all comes down to where you sit. Do you want to sit in the seat and say, Jesus, wash my feet? Well, he's already done that when he died for you on the cross. Now where will you sit? Will you get down on your knees like Jesus and look up at others? The least of those. The least in our community, in our society, in the church, in your life, in your family. Will you be on your knees looking up at them? That is the posture of Jesus. That is the posture of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe as he steps down to wash the feet of his creatures. That is humility. And so I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you as you step into this new year with all of the uncertainty, with all the people that you're going to meet, with all of the challenges that they're going to be facing in their lives. Ask yourself, how can I reflect the King of Heaven in my humble attitude to them? How can I look up to them, never forgetting who I am, never deprecating myself because I am a child of the King. But if the King of Kings can be on his knees and wash the feet of his creatures, then how can I as the son of the King 
serve those who are the least in my world? What will that look like? And this is where I want to have some conversation. We haven't done this in a while, but we have one service and we can do this. If Anuj, if you want to jump up, that'd be great. But I'd like to get some talk back. I'd like to hear from you. And the question I want to hear back from you from is what does humility look like? What, what do you think of? What comes to mind for you? Like, here's the question. When you think of a truly humble person, what characteristics, attitudes, and behaviors come to mind? Don't say me. And don't say Jesus, because, you know, we've kind of already talked about Jesus. But tell me about practical things that you would expect or you have seen demonstrated in someone that you think is a humble person. Christine. Owning up to your mistakes. Yes, I think that's a great one. What else does it look like? Putting others before yourself. Yep. Pride is worshipping yourself. Worshipping God. Being passionate about worshipping God. Absolutely, yes. I still can't hear you. Accepting you're a sinner. I know the masks make it really difficult to do talk back. Yes. Think broader than spiritual and theological things. Yes, Diane. Thankfulness. Yes, I think humility flows out in gratitude and thankfulness. Absolutely, great. Yeah, well that's, there we go. Now we're talking about it. Now it's getting real practical now. Yes, giving preference to somebody else. Yeah, yeah, great. Relying on God's strength instead of your own. What does that look like? Prayerfulness, dependence. Yep, okay. Serving, yes, absolutely. Serving others. And not just at church, in your workplace, in your family, particularly kids, can I say, young people, serving, finding ways that you can contribute and be a blessing to your parents. And parents, serving your kids and not just expecting they would be the ones that do all the serving. It goes both ways, according to what Jesus teaches. All right? Preach it again. Anything else? Josh? Yeah, listening rather than talking. Being eager to hear somebody else's thoughts rather than wanting to share mine. Yeah, great, Josh. Loving. Yeah, being loving. Yeah, loving. Being generous, being kind. All of those things that the Bible talks about. Very good. Yeah, I like that one. Letting others love on you and care for you. Being willing to receive love. I tell you, sometimes I see more pride in people refusing to get help than in wanting to help others. Because that can be a, a way of being proud. I don't want anybody's help. But yeah, receiving love is great. Andrew? Go beyond your job description. Yes, having that heart to be generous and to serve and to give. Yeah. Crystal? Forgiving. Oh, yeah. Just got real. Yes. Yes. Being humble to acknowledge, yeah, that I could be wrong here, they could be wrong, we're both human, we're both broken, we both need God's grace, and so extending forgiveness in humility, absolutely. Sorry? I can hear something. Anything else? Sacrifice? Yep. Giving of yourself? 
Anything else? I had, I had a few others admitting your limitations, saying I, I, that's as good as I can do. I think that's a really important thing. Um, not pretending to be more than you are or something that you're not. Being genuine, being real. And, and this, this is a big thing in, in our cultures, many of our cultures, where we're all about saving face and honor and all of that stuff. And again, I want to lovingly say that might be your culture, but that's not Bible. Biblical culture is reflecting Jesus. And so I encourage you, carry that heart into your culture, whatever that looks like in your home, in your extended family, being real, being, being honest and transparent. Somebody mentioned gratitude. Caring more about what God thinks than what others think, I think is a really important one. Doing things behind the scenes that nobody might notice, but that God will see. Because you're not about drawing attention to yourself. You're about honoring Jesus. Having a good sense of who you are. Not comparing yourself to somebody else and not trying to compete. Not having to be the best in the room every time. Not having to win every time. But just being so secure in how much God loves you that it doesn't matter if somebody else gets the spotlight. In fact, you would love for them to get the spotlight. Um, Yeah, and so related to that, not being threatened by the successes of others. We were able to cheer people on and celebrate other people's wins, I think is a great sign of humility. Not being afraid to fail, I think that's a big one for me. You know, I, I, I don't like failure. I'm driven sometimes. But growing in humility means being okay with my humanity and not trying to be God and trying to be perfect and trying never to make a mistake or never to get something wrong. I think that's another sign of humility. And I've already mentioned treating others with respect and dignity. Awesome. One last quote from Graham Bain, Bain, and then we're going to stand and we're going to worship. I've asked Anuj to sing, and if the band can get up as well, that'd be great. This this quote just sums up everything I'm wanting to say this morning. When we look at the cross, we're reminded of our sin, how appalling it is, and what judgment it deserved. But we're also reminded of God's mercy how gracious it is, and how utterly undeserved. And I love this part. No one can stand beside the cross and think proud thoughts. In fact, you can hardly stand at all. You can only kneel and say, thank you. Thank you. So like I said, humility, like all the other attitudes, are not things that you can go, okay, I'm going to be more humble today. But it comes by reflecting on the cross where Jesus ultimately demonstrated what humility looks like and being gripped by his humble service to us and out of that, serving others in humility. So we're going to do that. It begins by saying, Holy Spirit, I need you. I can't do this. My heart is too sinful and broken and evil and proud and wicked. Holy Spirit, I need you to transform my heart. Why don't you stand with me? Why don't you take a moment to just pray those prayers this morning before we sing? Why don't you open your hands as an act of surrender, as an act of welcoming the Holy Spirit right now to come into your heart, into your mind, into your being, in His fullness, in His love, reminding you of who you are, that you are loved, 
that you are no longer a slave, that you are a child of the living God. And I want to speak that over you. Anyone who's feeling condemned, anyone who's feeling judged, anyone who's feeling guilty and ashamed, I want to speak that you are loved, that you are the son, you're the daughter of the living God. He has served you. He has humbled himself to rescue and redeem you. You are not who you were. You are not who you will be, but you are not who you were. Will you reach out to him and say, Lord, save me. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, if you've never invited him to be the Lord and Savior of your life, you can do that right now, whether you're in this room, whether you're outside, whether you're watching online. Reach out your hand like a drowning person and say, Lord, save me. I need your forgiveness. I've rebelled. I've sinned. I've turned my back on you. I've made myself God. I've tried to dethrone you and put myself on the throne. God, I'm sorry. Have mercy on me. Save me. And if you're already a follower of Jesus, pray the same prayer. Lord, save me. Save me from a prideful heart. Save me from drifting away into idolatry. Save me from thinking too highly of myself. Save me from stealing glory and credit that belongs to you. Save me from exalting myself above you. Save me from thinking that I'm, I can be independent and not totally dependent on your grace and mercy every day. Holy Spirit, I open my heart to you right now. Come and fill me afresh. Change me. Transform me. As I gaze upon the cross. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church Podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.